This is Being Modern, Being Human, a podcast about contemporary society. Today we're going to talk about positive and toxic masculinity, femininity, and the societal conditioning of these concepts. My guest today is Max Scotty McGregor, a transgender man and founder of Positive Masculinity, a nonprofit that works to dismantle toxic masculinity. Hi, Mac. Welcome. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. <laughs> Wonderful. I would like to start with your background. Prior to your transition, you were a successful female athlete and coach. Could you briefly tell us about uh, your career, your professional path? I found what I call my soulmate, the martial arts, when I was only six years old. And started training and just loved it. I was the kid that they had to kick out when they closed the doors and tell me to go home each night and started competing very early on. And then I was the number one in the state for each rank division I was in and age division as I came up through the ranks. And then by the time I was 17, I won the U.S. fighting title, the U.S. lightweight fighting title. And that propelled me to travel and compete at a higher level, which opened my world up because I was from a little small area that's in the Bible Belt and went to a Southern Baptist high school and college. So it was a very limiting, I would say, community in a lot of ways. And so that that let me see the world and see that there were more people that were LGBTQ. There were more people that were different and it just opened up my world. It was also a great study of human behavior and getting to learn about other cultures and things like that, which I think is a wonderful education. I also then started becoming a, a keynote speaker at events, a motivational speaker at a lot of athletic banquets and things like that and different events. And yeah, my career just took off. And so I have really good genetics for an athlete. So I competed at the world-class level for the last time when I was 39 years old, which is a very long career in a contact sport because all of my awards are in fighting. So I was in the world championships at 39 and I won two medals in that world championships. And I had 18 and 19 year old kids on the team calling me the grandparent of the U.S. karate team at the time. <laughs> and so I thought after winning two medals, this is a good time to retire from competition. So I did. <laughs> now, during this period of time, I also opened up my own dojo and was teaching as well as speaking. So I had really enjoyed coaching and teaching. And I kept on, of course, coaching. And now I've coached 59 national champions and 29 junior Olympic champions. So I'm a certified Olympic coach and referee still. I then chose back up a little bit at four years old, growing up in the Bible Belt, I knew that the Southern Bell name I was given did not fit me. Now the word transgender had not even been invented yet. It hadn't even, it wasn't even around. There was, I didn't have the language to explain. Of course, at four years old, you wouldn't anyway, but, <laughs> but all I knew was that that name didn't fit me in the expectations around gender, just didn't resonate with me. And so I started changing my name, playing with other kids to a masculine name at four years old with absolutely no exposure to anyone in the LGBTQ plus community. At the time, I changed my name to 
a name from the TV show Gunsmoke that my grandfather and I watched together. I told everybody I was Matt Dillon, the sheriff on that show, because <laughs> I, I didn't know what else to use. And so my grandparents actually thought it was pretty cute when kids would come and knock on the door and ask if Matt Dillon could come out and play. <laughs> and I wore my little cowboy boots and little six shooters and cowboy hat and all that. And so I had this interesting journey with that as well, growing up in an area like that. And it's okay when you're born female to be a tomboy for a while until you hit puberty. And then people expect you to, they expect you to toe the line, basically to, to put your dress on and go to church and be a lady all of a sudden. And that didn't fit me, of course. Now I had to learn to navigate that. And that was very, very difficult because the threat in a lot of communities like that is if you don't fit into the gender norms, they'll ostracize you. And so I had to try to play this game of navigating that carefully. And that was definitely a challenge. After I retired from competition, I began medical transition. I had done a lot of research by then. Of course, the internet was around by then to find community and do research. And so I knew what was possible. And as an athlete, I wanted to do it in the healthiest way possible with doctors and folks that are experienced with this because my body's always been a fine-tuned machine for me as an athlete. And so that's what brought me actually to Seattle is because Seattle has a large gender nonconforming and transgender community, folks I could talk to that have been through this and understood it. And they also have doctors and therapists and folks that know what they're doing with this. So that's actually what originally brought me to Seattle, where I am now. When you announced that you're transitioning into the other sex, how did your family and friends react? And how did that transition period go for you? It was, it was a wild journey, I will say. There was a little bit all over the map. There were some people that were really supportive and other people that didn't understand and thought it was ridiculous and it would be bad for my career and bad for me in general. And there were some people that just backed off and waited to see how things looked and then came back around after a while. I actually had one dear friend tell me, oh, so you're now going to become one of those male chauvinist pigs. And I, that really struck me because with my life experience, I had lived by the time I started medical transition, I was 42, so I had lived the meaning of life. No matter how I felt inside, what the world viewed me outside, I was walking the world as a female, so I got treated like that. Experienced sexism, I was top of my field. So I experienced a great deal of sexism in a very male-dominated world of sports. And so that really struck me that someone would think that I could become that. Just from, they said, you're going to take a shot of testosterone and that's what it's going to do to you. And I said, but what about my life experience? I don't think that's true. And that friend has since come back around and said, yes, I see now because I continually fight for women's rights. I always have. I fought for women's rights as an athlete because we didn't get the same anything, training facilities, money behind the team or anything that the men did. So I began that journey as an activist pretty young. 
And I continually fight for women's rights and equality and equity. It's important for us to do that. <laughs> we aren't living in the dark ages anymore. It's ridiculous that there's still a gender pay gap. You do have very unique experience being on both sides. Judging by your experience, um, what femininity and masculinity models are the most toxic ones in our society and what affected you personally on both sides as well? There's so much. I will say that the martial arts on the other side gave me a bit of an out um, when I was walking the world as a woman because you're allowed to be more assertive. You're allowed to be stronger and show that strength in the martial arts, right? That's actually celebrated in the martial arts to a certain extent, as long as you don't make the men in the room look too pathetic, right? So I had to navigate that. I experienced sexism as a young athlete. I had male referees offering me their room keys to do me favors in competition and things that were really devastating to me as a young person because some of these men were men I looked up to as well-known martial artists and thought they were great as a martial artist. And then they act like that. And it was just really disillusioning. And then I had to navigate, you know, dancing around them and trying not to be caught anywhere alone with them because of their behavior. It was gross. It was just really awful to deal with that. And then the other thing that I remember very prominently was no matter how many awards I won. And I'm an, I especially then was an extreme overachiever. No matter how many things I did and conquered and won, I was always told, you're pretty good for a girl. So there's this, it's like a underhanded compliment, right? You're good, but you're not just good. You're only good for a girl, which means you don't really measure up. And of course, this was always guys saying that. It was always men saying. So I really speak up anytime I hear somebody do that to a young person or to anyone. If you're good at something, you're good at something. It's not for a girl or a short person or whatever. We can do all the things people say that are awful to people about that. If you're good, celebrate that. So that's something that, that really stuck out to me that I talk to parents about all the time, being careful that those things aren't said to young people. The other, there was an in-between phase. When you go through transition, the first couple of years, you don't come out looking like this right away, right? I pass now. I do what I, we call pass now. But you never know. Some of that's the luck of genetics and you just don't know how that's going to turn out. But the first two years on hormone replacement therapy, you're going through these changes and you're basically going through a second puberty. And while you're in that period, people don't know which category to put you in the binary a lot of times. So they misgender you a lot and they him haw around because they sir, ma'am you. They don't know what to do. You can see how uncomfortable it makes people. And so that was an interesting experience and study of human behavior because watching their uncomfortableness, because I didn't fit neatly into one of their boxes in that time period, was really interesting to see. It, it made them, I think, more uncomfortable than it did me. 
And then now on the other side, there were things no one prepared me for. Like me being someone who has traveled the world and taught women self-defense, even in women's shelters and women's prisons to help empower women. The first time walking down the street in the evening and seeing a woman walk alone, walking alone, that she looked at me and crossed the street because she didn't know if I was safe. That hit my heart like a ton of bricks because, but I, I get it. I've taught self-defense. I understand I've walked that part of my life as well. I know she didn't know my story, but it's still mm. hard to take that now I'm one of those people that a lot of women look at and they don't know if I'm safe or not right away. And that's hard. I think the other thing that's really difficult is I've taught children for so much of my life and love children. I have two granddaughters, love, have six nieces. I love, and next. I used to all the time be able to play with the kid in the grocery store line in the cart in front of me, and it would be fine presenting female. And now I'm very aware and watch the reaction. And now if I'm alone, the mom or grandmother or whoever's with the child may look at me and go, are you a creepy old man? Why are you being playful with this baby, you're this child in the cart. If my wife is with me or a female friend, it's a very different reaction. It's fine. That's really hard when you're a good guy that has a good heart. That's the other side of it that I think people don't think about. I think what you just described isn't quite about toxic masculinity. It's about gender stereotypes. But once you're a man, you have to meet certain criteria as well. How do they affect your life? Could you talk more about that? What was your experience? I'm at an age and a point in my life and life experience where I guess um, I don't feel the need to conform as much as I did when I was younger. But one of the really toxic messages, there's a few that I work with guys on all the time. One is that we are not allowed to show any emotion other than anger or jumping up and down, high-fiving each other if our team wins the game. So we're not allowed to show when we're sad, when we're depressed about something, down about something, tenderness, grief. Those are the kinds of emotions that we are told we have to shut down because if we show those, that's weakness. The other message that's very toxic is that it shows weakness for us to ask for help. And that is a big message in the male world is that we're supposed to be self-sufficient. We're supposed to have it all under control. We're supposed to be able to do it all ourselves. And the minute we ask for help, that's a sign of weakness. And I would say the third big message that I have a hard time with is that we're always supposed to be competitive against one another, men against men which keeps us from being collaborative. It keeps us from having deeper friendships with the other men in our life because it's hard to let your armor down when you're always at battle. So those are things that I work with men on all the time, getting over that messaging because it's toxic. It's toxic to our health. The number one group for suicide, the suicide rate is highest among middle-aged men. And I think that this type of messaging 
is to blame for that. How do you work with that through your foundation? You also authored a book, Positive Masculinity Now. So tell me more about your activities, your work with men. Is it trainings, some events? Yeah, I teach workshops, first of all, to groups, whether it be corporate groups or spiritual groups, or I've taught at retreats, all kinds of events. I also host a monthly free virtual men's discussion group where we have a different topic that we tackle each month. We have different subjects that we, we talk about creating healthy masculine friendships, all kinds of different things, dismantling, you know, the old messaging that we had. I wrote my book and in the book, I walk people through exercises to go back and re-examine the modeling and messaging we had around gender. And with an adult conscious mind, decide what really serves us well from that messaging and what doesn't. And then replace what doesn't with something healthy. I think so many of us, we walk along with the modeling and messaging we got from our parents and grandparents and teachers and coaches growing up. And we don't re-examine those things as adults. We just carry those things forward. And that modeling and messaging actually helps us form our belief systems, how we judge others, and even how we judge and limit ourselves. Most people aren't going to do it on their own unless somebody kind of guides them through fifth, because it's hard interpersonal work to go through those things. Basically, it's psychological work. It's therapy. Did you do your research in psychology? Did you master some techniques in that field? I've been a facilitator and life coach for a long time. And then I'd studied, I read everything there was out there to read on this type of thing and how to walk people through this. And then I just, I've always loved helping people thrive, helping people overcome obstacles that stop us from thriving. And I think that these types of limiting beliefs and thinking, they hold us back. There's all kinds of messages. Like one of the silly things that I like to share with people about messaging from that gender messaging that we all got when we were kids was one of my black belts, who's actually an amazing martial artist and teacher. She asked to take martial arts when she was a little girl and her parents told her that's not for girls. Now she's in her fifties now. So this is a while back, but still her parents were traditional and told her that's not for girls. Now, if she had listened to that limiting messaging from her parents, she would have never explored this. But what she did was she waited till she went away from home to college and her college offered a martial arts class. And that's where she started her journey and signed up for a class at her college. She became a wonderful martial artist and a great martial arts teacher now. But she would have never known that if she'd have listened to that limiting messaging. I know men that were told they shouldn't do certain things because it wasn't considered the right thing for their gender. Like one, like I know men that love to cook, but were made fun of younger because they wanted to be in there with mom or whoever, grandma learning the, how to cook. Look at some of the great chefs in the world that are men. And if they had listened to that messaging, right, they wouldn't do what they're doing. That's just a very 
easy example to look at of how these messages limit us. Absolutely. Uh, I'm curious about those men who come to your workshops. As you said, uh, it's very hard for men to accept that they are fragile, that something wrong is happening with them. I suppose that those who are coming are going through some kind of crisis or realize that they are on the verge and that it's good for them to, to ask for help. There are a few different ways that, that men come to this work. Like you said, people come when they're in a crisis or when they get to a point in their life from holding up what I call the man masks for so long that they feel empty. They feel it, it's not working for them. They want more out of life. And then there's those that are just growth-minded people. And of course, they are the cheerleaders for else because I'm a growth-minded person and bandwagon much easier. And then we have another group that I will say that the women in their life push them to come. <laughs> <laughs> Whether it be their partner or sister or good friend or mother, I have a lot of men that the women in the said, I think you should try this. Another question I wanted to ask you is, how do you communicate with your grandchildren? As you mentioned before, a lot of these gender stereotypes come from our childhood, the stories we hear, the tales we read. What's your approach to educating your grandchildren? I'm convinced that's the way we're going to really make changes enough of us can do this work that we stop passing this old messaging on children in their lives. It's so interesting that not after the Supreme Court here, uh, reverse v. Wade, I was visiting, my wife and I were visiting our son and daughter-in-law and grandchildren, and they had a march there for women's rights, women's reproductive rights, and took the girls. I have two granddaughters, they're three and eight, of course, the three-year-old is not at a point to understand what's going on, but the eight-year-old asked, what are we marching for? What is this about? And what we told her, and I was the one that gave her this explanation, I said, it's trying to make rules where girls don't have the same rights as boys. That was the way I thought was good to explain it to her as as her eight-year-old mind could take it. And she cocked her head right away and said to us, that doesn't make any sense. Why would they do that? And I said, exactly. And that's why we're here. We don't think it does. We don't think it makes any sense either. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> As she got to March with me and both of her parents and her little sister for this at eight years old. That's the kind, that's the kind of thing we do. And, I, and we just constantly, she's more, I would say, gender neutral, doesn't like to dress as girly where her little three-year-old sister is into all the princess stuff. She's not. She's more of a video gamer and dresses very, I would say, neutral and non-binary. And we are totally supportive and let her pick what she wants to play with and wear. And her parents are great about it as well. I think those are the ways that we pass on better. At what point do you think it would be good for her to know that your granddad was different when he was born? 
I think every kid is a little different. I couldn't just say a certain age would work for every kid to explain that because not everybody matures at this in the at the same rate and so forth in their thinking. But I think it probably will be when she gets into middle school. I think that's probably where more gender stuff will come out. As soon as the opportunity arises, we have no problem talking to her about that. My last question that I ask all my guests is what being modern, being human mean to you? I would say the modern part to me means, like I said earlier, re-examining the old modeling and messaging and being flexible, being curious, being willing to try new ways of doing things and look at new ideas and not being stuck or not being in a set mindset, but to be open-minded to new thoughts and ideas and new ways of doing things. I think that's one thing that I'm very passionate about as I'm in my mid-50s now. I watch a lot of people as they age, they get more stuck. And I think we have a choice in that. And I've made a conscious choice, both my wife and I have, to be very open to new things. But we're both growth-minded people, and that really helps. To be human is, to, to me, the thing about being human is realizing that we're all connected, that we all, even those we disagree with, I have to continuously remind myself to see the humanity in them, even somebody who's fighting against my very rights, because I don't want to lose sight of that, that they're human beings trying to figure it out just like everyone else. And most of us want the same things out of life. We want to feel safe, loved. We want to have access to healthcare and education and have our basic needs met and be able to love who we want to love. So I try to find the commonalities and remember to see everyone's humanity. That's so true. Thank you so much, Mac. It's been a pleasure talking to you. All the best to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, feel free to leave a rating or review on one of your favorite platforms. That will help others discover the podcast and enjoy it as much as you do. That was the last episode this year. I wish you a great holiday season with your loved ones, your families. Be happy, be inspired, be modern, and be human. Next episode will come out already next year, on the first Monday of 2023. In the meantime, enjoy your holidays. Bye-bye.